Welcome to Rediscovering Earth's Lost Topography, where today we have a special guest, Perry Whitaker. Perry Whitaker has been doing a lot of stuff. He's been all around with adventures. He's done a lot with Mississippi. Um, he works a lot with river cleanups. Um, he does everything. So I want to introduce Perry Whitaker today. Thank you, Perry Whitaker, for being part of the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So today I'd like uh, for you to talk about the Mississippi and basically I know you do um, speeches and stuff at universities. You do speeches at museums and stuff like that. Can you go ahead and um, I'm going to probably turn the mic over to you. And at this point, have you go ahead and tell us what you do and uh, what you know about the Mississippi. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm Perry Whitaker. I uh, paddle a lot. Um, I'm on the I'm on a few outdoor related nonprofit boards, including the Mississippi River Water Trail Association, the Mississippi River Network, the Merrimack River Recreation Association, and I'm the regional director for the American Canoe Association. I uh, mostly kayak on the Mississippi, but I kayak on all of them and canoe on all of them. Um, I've canoed the whole Mississippi, and most of it I've kayaked multiple times. I've uh, kayaked the whole Illinois from Chicago to St. Louis, uh, the whole Merrimack. I've kayaked that a couple times, and about a third of the Missouri and a bunch of other rivers. Uh, this presentation is uh, Paddling the Middle Mississippi, Native Americans, Early Explorers, and Steamboats. And like Ron said, I've given this presentation at universities and museums, but usually uh, there I'll have a slideshow. So uh, since this is uh, we don't have a slideshow here, you're going to have to rely on your, your imagination to kind of see what we're doing. Uh, I don't have the 8 10 color glossy photographs with circles and arrows and paragraph on each one. Um, so, you know, people have been in Missouri for over 12,000 years, and um, the way people moved around the state and other states, you know, we didn't have trains, we didn't have planes, uh, we had, didn't have interstates. They used our rivers, and the most awesome river in North America is right here in our backyard, and uh, if you ask people about the Mississippi, most people, they're not going to tell you about that history. Uh, they're going to tell you about where the bridges are. We've lost that connection with the with the Mississippi. That's that river is why we're here. Why St. Louis is here. Why Memphis is here. Why New Orleans is here. Why why Minneapolis is here. It's all because of that river. Um, the Mississippi. It's got quite a few nicknames. Uh, the Father of Waters. The Big Muddy. Um, it's it's the major river in our in our nation, but. It's not the longest. Uh, most people think it is, but the longest river is actually the Missouri. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later as we go along. Um, the Mississippi, at, uh, the upper Mississippi starts at uh, Lake Itasca, Minnesota, and it goes about 1,000 miles to the mouth of the Missouri, just north of St. Louis. And then the middle Mississippi goes from the mouth of the Missouri to the mouth of the Ohio near Cairo, Illinois. And then the lower Mississippi goes from near Cairo, down to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, the whole river is really interesting, but I don't have time to talk about all of it. So mostly I'm going to focus on this little section right here in our backyard, the middle Mississippi. But in order to tell that story, I kind of have to talk about 
the other parts a little bit. Uh, so up at Lake Itasca, Minnesota, um, the river's just a couple inches deep. You can wade across it. There's uh, quite a few places where you can actually jump across it and not even get your feet wet. Um, and I, I tried to jump across it, and I ended up in the water. It didn't work out well. But uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, so before I go any further, I want to do a little time travel with you. And I realize that we don't really have the ability to do time travel. So this is where you get to use your imagination. I want you to go back in time to the year 1491. And I want you to think about what the population of the Americas looked like in 1491. So pre-Columbian contact. Most people think this was empty, empty land. Uh, it absolutely was not empty. Most population experts, and when I say population experts, I mean like real experts, not Facebook geniuses, but most population experts will argue that there were more people in the New World than there were in the Old World before Columbus came. Because keep in mind, in the 1300s, they had a series of plagues in Europe. Uh, we usually just categorize them as the, the Black Plague, but it was actually a number of plagues that killed about half the population of Europe. And so uh, it took a, a couple hundred years for them to replenish that, uh, that population. Uh, so in the Americas, there were more people here than in the old country. So kind of keep that in mind. Um, so... Now we're going to do a little more time travel, and uh, we're going to go to um, 1673. Um, in 1673, along the East Coast, it was mostly the British. And on the Southern Coast, Gulf Coast, that was mostly the Spanish. And up along the Great Lakes, that was mostly the French. And they all hated each other. And in the middle of all that were the indigenous Americans. And in 1673, uh, they wanted to, everybody wanted to explore what was in between the French, the Spanish, and the, the, the British. Um, and the French, there's a, a, a place kind of where Lake Huron, Lake Michigan meet, uh, a town there. Um, there's this French fur trapper and French priest they were talking about it, and their names were Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet. Uh, but in American, we call them Marquette and Joliet. But, you know, the Native Americans, they kept talking to them about this great river down south that the white people didn't know about, that they hadn't explored. And they kept talking about it, and Marquette and Joliet, well, they, they decided they wanted to go see it and explore it. And so they asked the Native Americans, well, what do you call that great river? And uh, the Native Americans said, well, we call it the Great River. Um, in Ojibwe, Great River is Mississippi. I might be butchering that exact pronunciation, but I think that's probably pretty close. So Marquette and Joliet, they got a, a few people together, five, five people and two canoes, and they took off across Lake Michigan, and uh, they got to near where Green Bay, Wisconsin is, and went across the current state of Wisconsin uh, to the Mississippi, and then they headed south. 
And what they did, they would go into a Native American village and, hey, we're Marquette and Chaliette. We're just passing through. We want to get to know our neighbors. Um, just tell us what, what you can about your neighbors and about the land around you. And generally, the French got along okay with the Native Americans. Um, and, of course, you know, usually, just like us, if a stranger from another country comes by our house, we say, yeah, well, yeah, welcome. Let me tell you about it. Uh, come on, let's have a bison steak and uh, hang around the teepee for a while. And so they did that, and um, then the, they would tell them about the people downstream. And then they'd get down to the next village, and they go through the whole process again. And, you know, they would say, okay, well, you know, the people in the village down, downstream, they're nice. We like them. Uh People across the river from them, they're kind of weird. We don't, they speak a different language. We don't really understand them. Uh, and then down further, there's these people who are really mean and want to fight all the time. We stay away from them. And um, of course, they had problems with language too. You know, we had thousands of different languages. So once in a while, uh, they go into a village and um, the chief or whoever was in charge would say, well, you know, this guy. He can speak their language. He'll go down with you to the next village. And at some point in Wisconsin, uh, a chief uh, sent his son along with Marquette and Joliet. Um, well, they said it was a son, but they actually think it was probably a slave. But it was a teenage boy. And so he continued, that teenager continued on down the river with Marquette and Joliet to serve as an interpreter. Um, and so... They did that for a while, and um, it, it worked out pretty well. And um, they'd go into a village, and, uh, uh, yeah, what do you call the people downstream? Well, we call them this. We call them that. And a lot of times what one village called their neighbors was, wasn't really what their neighbors called themselves. Usually it wasn't what their neighbors called themselves. And sometimes what they called their neighbors was less than flattering. Uh, some examples of that is uh, the word Cherokee is a Muskegee word. It means speaker of another language. Winnebago is an Algonquin word. It means smelly water. Eskimo is a Cree name. It means raw meat eaters. Mohawk is an Algonquin word. It means man eaters. And Apache is a Zuni word. It means enemy. So... They all had these other names for the neighboring tribes, and that kind of confuses people today. They'll say, well, why do you call them that instead of this? Well, it's because what they, their neighbors called them is kind of what we wrote down in our history books. Um, so Marquette and Joliet, they're going down the river, gathering, intent, gathering intelligence. Uh, and as they got a little closer to the St. Louis area, you know, the Native Americans, they said there was this big muddy river coming up and it's all turbulent and everything. And, uh, and it's muddy and dirty. And uh, there's some people on that river that paddle around in these big, long canoes. And these canoes hold like 30 or 50 people. And with all the 30 or 50 people, you know, those canoes can travel really fast. And so Mark and Joliet said, well, okay, well, what do you call those, those, that river? Well, we call it river with the people with the long canoes. Um, that's where the name Missouri came from. And their language, O-Missouriet, 
meant people of the long canoes. Um, so that kind of gets us to the St. Louis region. Um, now I want to do a little bit more time travel. Um, a thousand years ago, two of the largest cities in North America were right in this region. Uh, right across the river from St. Louis is uh, Cahokia. Um, we don't know what they called it. We call it Cahokia. Um, your homework is to go to Cahokia Mounds if you get a chance. Um, they believe that a thousand years ago, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people lived there. Um, there's still quite a few mounds that are surviving in that area. Most mounds in the U.S. have been bulldozed over, uh, but there's still, there's still thousands around. So there's a, um, a few hundred right in that general area around Cahokia. But then, then in St. Louis, one of the early uh, nicknames for St. Louis was Mound City because we had so many mounds in the city of St. Louis. And those mostly have been destroyed. Uh, there's still one mound left in the city of St. Louis. It's uh, called Sugarloaf Mound. And there are about 40 mounds around St. Louis County. Um, and that's 40 mounds that are left over from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Uh, the mounds haven't been protected even when we knew they should have been. Um, just like 20 years ago uh, near Fenton, Missouri, there are two mounds Um Walmart wanted to build a new building, and there were two mounds in the way. And so, yeah, they just bulldozed those mounds. Um, most of the mounds in the St. Louis area, we I've been to most of them, but we don't want people to know where they are because people will go and, and loot them. Um, yeah, people just don't have any respect for that. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of mounds all up and down the Mississippi, all up and down the Missouri River, up and down the Illinois, on the Merrimack. And they're all around us. And a lot of times you'll look at it and you won't realize it's a, it's a Native American mound. And I want you to try to wrap your brain around how these mounds were, were built. You know, they didn't have bulldozers. They didn't have tractors. Uh, they didn't have draft animals. The mounds were built basket of dirt at a time. And to kind of put that into perspective, how much dirt that required, Monk's Mound at Cahokia is 10 stories tall. And the base of that mound is bigger than the pyramids in Egypt. And they were built one basket of dirt at a time. Um, so try to imagine how many people over how many years it took to build these mounds. Um, so that gets back to America wasn't empty before we got here. So there, this is a, a pretty crowded place. Um, so let's talk about St. Louis a little bit. Um, started out just as a little trading community. Um, didn't grow very much for a while, but I mean, it was a, a good location there at the the where the Missouri came into it. It was a great place to have a trading uh, fort. Um, in eighteen seventeen, the first steamboat came to town. It was the Zebulon Pike. Uh, 
traveled up the river and it went so slow that people could walk faster than the, the steamboat went. And uh, of course, most people had no idea what this, this monster was coming up the river. So the Native Americans were pretty, pretty uh, afraid of it. They thought it was some kind of a monster belching smoke. Um, it got to St. Louis and pretty much everybody in town went there to see it. And like I said, that was in 1817. And in 25 years, we had over 3,000 steamboats per year coming to St. Louis. That's how fast uh, the city grew. In 1817, we had 4,000 people. And um, then in, in just a, a couple decades, we were up to 60,000. And it was mostly because of the steamboat trade, the riverboat trade. Uh, but also in the uh, year 1849, um, Something happened out in California. It brought a lot of people to St. Louis. Uh, gold, 1849. Uh, they even named a football team after it, the 49ers. And all these people were coming to St. Louis from all over the world, up the Mississippi and across Illinois to get to St. Louis. And that's where they jumped on boats and, and, and everything to head west on the, the Missouri River to try to get to um get to California, and there are wagon trains and everything else. And so one thing that happens when people from all over the world converge on one place is they bring all these different languages and these different foods, but they also brought all these diseases. They brought diseases from all over the world, smallpox and, and cholera and everything else. And um, in 1849, uh, we had a pretty nasty uh, um, ep epidemic in St. Louis, um, the cholera epidemic. It, it, it killed some estimates of one out of seven people. Um, so, you know, a few minutes ago, I talked about how many people were in the U.S. before we got here. So people from all over the world were coming to St. Louis, coming to the U.S., I mean, and they're bringing diseases from all over the place. And the Native Americans, they had no experience with these diseases. And when I say experience, they had no immune, immunity to these diseases. Uh, so 1491, more people here than in Europe within 100 years over 90% of the Native American population died of these diseases that they had no experience with. They came over from Europe. Uh, but there's still a lot of people here. Um, so along the Mississippi, it was just one pandemic after another. Smallpox uh, was one that traveled pretty often, uh, but there were others as well. Um, so a lot of towns around the St. Louis area, uh, they, they were formed around 1849 because of the cholera epidemic in St. Louis. So people wanted to get away from all this disease. So they formed these towns around St. Louis. Um, also in 1849, something else happened with all these new people and all these steamboats parked along the riverfront. Uh, one of the steamboats caught on fire. It was uh, called the White Cloud. And it caught another boat on fire, which caught another boat on fire, which caught, caught some buildings on fire. And so we had the, the great St. Louis uh, um, fire 
that our fire wasn't caused by a, a cow like allegedly caused the Chicago fire. Uh, but 430 buildings burnt in the city of St. Louis. It just kind of devastated the whole waterfront. And that's when they uh, realized that maybe they should build buildings out of brick instead of wood. Um, so now let's head downstream the Mississippi a little bit further uh, down to Jefferson Barracks. Uh, some of you are familiar with it. It's, there's a Jefferson Barracks Hospital. It was a military installation, or it still is a military installation. I think most people are familiar with it because of the, the cemetery. Uh, there's 190,000 graves at Jefferson Barracks Cemetery. Um, I wish they had, there's a couple museums there. I wish they had a couple more. It's, it's there's just an incredible history there. Um, so, you know, a minute ago, I talked about the steamboat catching on fire at the St. Louis river riverfront. Um, that's what steamboats did. They caught on fire. They blew up. They sunk. Usually steamboats only lasted a couple years before, uh, they were destroyed. Uh, I want to talk about one particular steamboat wreck. Um, this was in 1865, uh, right at the end of uh, the Civil War. And this didn't actually happen in our region, but it was headed to Jefferson Barracks is the reason I want to talk about it. So at the end of the Civil War, they're emptying out all the Confederate prisons, and uh, they're trying to figure out how to get people back up north. And uh, so they decided, well, this, there's a couple prisons here. People are pretty sick. We're going to send them up to Jefferson Barracks Hospital. And uh, the way we're going to do it, we're going to cram as many people on steamboats as we can. So they offered the steamboat captains X number of dollars per person to cram as many people as they could onto these steamboats to move them up, up north. And uh, one of these steamboats, it was... Uh, the steamboat Sultana. It was uh, it was uh, registered to carry like 336 people, I think, and they had well over 2,000 people on that boat because the captain was getting paid by the person. And so, and it was headed up the river, and it got to Memphis, and a lot of people got off. They said this is just too messed up. Uh, it was nasty. People were dying all over. I keep in mind, these were people who had been in prison a lot and with diseases. A lot of them were in the Confederate prisons because they were injured, and it was really nasty to be on that boat. And uh, so the boat was heading up north, stopped in Memphis. A bunch of people jumped off, uh, but it still had well over 2,000 people on it. And um, about seven miles north of Memphis, the boat blew up. And, of course, we didn't have radios or anything, so people didn't know that the boat blew up until in the city of Memphis they saw all these boat bodies floating by. So over 2,000 people died on that steamboat that was headed to Jefferson Barracks. Um, I've actually camped at as close to that place as possible, and I don't believe in haunting and crazy crazy woo-woo stuff like that. But if there's any place in the world that's haunted, that would be it. Um, so, you know, like I said, it was headed to uh, Jefferson Barracks. Um, I'll talk about another steamboat wreck a little later, too. So a little bit further downstream from Jefferson Barracks is uh, this creek coming into the Mississippi uh, by Kimswick. 
Uh, it's called Rock Creek. Um, if you go up Rock Creek, just a couple miles, it goes through Mastodon State Historic Site. Um, earlier, I, I mentioned the, your homework is to go to Cahokia Mounds. I want you to go to Mastodon also and check that out. Um, the reason I bring it up is because I've found Mastodon teeth on the Mississippi River, and uh, um, there's all kinds of fossils out there. It's just amazing. And I'm, I'm not smart enough to be able to tell the difference between this fossil and that fossil, but sometimes those teeth the size of a football are pretty easy to identify. Um, a little bit further downstream from uh, Rock Creek and Kimswick, uh, you run into some of the oldest towns in the region. There's uh, Fort Deschartes, uh, Fort Kaskaskia, St. Genevieve, and they're all within just a, a few miles of each other. And um, there's, some, there's a few theories about why those towns were um, settled there as opposed to anywhere else. But... Um, one of the most compelling arguments is um, keep in mind that in the 1700s, 1800, early 1800s, people didn't have refrigeration. And so if you wanted to preserve meat, one of the best ways to do that was with salt and smoke, you know, making your jerky. And right there at near St. Genevieve is Saline Creek. And along Saline Creek, there were these uh, there were Native American villages, and they were mining that salt and uh, and trading it up and down the Mississippi River. Uh, remember those uh, those canoes that had thirty or forty paddlers in it, so they could load down on that salt and travel to get this food source that was somewhere else, or get this material to make and um, to make uh, projectile points somewhere else. And uh, so they're trading up and down the river uh, with that saline, that salt from that region. Um, Fort Deschartes, uh, more homework for you. I want you to go by Fort Deschartes. It's really cool. It was, uh, it was founded about 1720 and they've recreated the fort uh, a later version of the fort there, and it, it's uh, it's it's pretty neat to see. And they have reenactments there, and uh, people who dress up in uh, period clothing, and uh, it's pretty cool. Um, fort Kaskaskia, I'll talk about Kaskaskia in a little bit more detail later. Yeah, they think it was uh, formed in about 1703, and uh, Saint Genevieve. Uh, it was uh, founded about 1735. So those three really old cities right there within a few miles of each other. Um, and of course, St. Genevieve is, uh, is, is, there's still something there. It, it's really interesting. I mean, drive through it and it, it seems, sometimes it seems like you're driving through this old French town and it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, but Kaskaskia, I want to talk about that for a minute. Uh, there's still the remnants of uh, Fort Kaskaskia up on a hill right there beside the Mississippi. Uh, Kaskaskia was actually the first capital of Illinois. Um, in 1800, there were about 7,000 people living there. It was a huge city. Um, it's first capital of Illinois, and um, my great, great, great grandfather 
was actually elected to the first Illinois House of Representatives in Kaskaskia. Um, and then the capital moved to Vandalia and, and, and Springfield. Um, the reason, one of the reasons it moved is because the Mississippi kept destroying Kaskaskia. Um, like I said, there were 7,000 people living there at one point. Now there are 14. It was down to 11 for a while, so they've had this uh, population boom over the last few years. Uh, but where Kaskaskia was is right in the middle of where the Mississippi is now. Um, but like I said, there's still the remnants of the fort up on the hill there, and it's pretty cool. And they moved the cemetery from uh, the city of Kaskaskia, or the village of Kaskaskia, up on the hill. Um, one of the interesting things about Kaskaskia is Kaskaskia, Illinois, is on the west side of the Mississippi River. And so... Uh, when the state of Illinois wants to do road work, they have to, they have to go to the ferry and uh, St. Genevieve or the bridge in Chester or bridge in Cape Girardeau and go across and uh, go to the state of Missouri to go work on the roads in, in uh, Kaskaskia, Illinois. Um, so Mark and Joliet, they're traveling down the river and uh, there's this, Native American trail going along the, the west bank of the Mississippi. And, and we have no idea what they called that trail. Uh, it probably had a number of different names. But then, you know, as the French and the Spanish uh, uh, populated the area, they, they named it. They named it the El Camino Real, or the Royal Highway. Uh, and that road, it still exists. The Royal Highway still exists. But uh, in St. Louis, we call it King's Highway, Cape Girardeau, King's Highway. All these towns up and down the river, it's the King's Highway. Um, then in, uh, in the 1800s, between uh, St. Louis and St. Genevieve, they, uh, they put telegraph wires along the road. And so they still call it the Telegraph Road uh, in that area. But... Uh, yeah, the King's Highway, uh, or the El Camino Real, it goes from the mouth of the Missouri and St. Louis down to the New Madrid area. Um, along that route, there are some, some uh, granite monuments along the way talking about the history of that, that road. Um, so in that region, if you look on the Missouri side, it's it's pretty hilly, and you know Illinois is kind of no, notorious for being flat, and uh, the reason for that is because the the glaciers in Illinois, uh, they just kind of bulldozed the area and flattened it, and as you get near Chester, Illinois, you notice a significant change. It's it goes from flat to pretty hilly, and that because that's where the glacier stopped. Um, from the river, it's pretty pretty apparent. You can just see it. It's flat, flat, flat. Oh, not flat. And it's, it's pretty neat to see. Um, let's go a little further downstream. Um, there's this one island I like to camp on all the time. Um, it's called Hanging Dog Island. And uh, I have no idea how it got its name. I, I've looked around. I couldn't find anything. I found it on maps. Like uh, I found it on an 1830 map. Uh, Mark Twain talked about it in his book, Life on the Mississippi. And so I, I originally I camped on that island because I just liked the name. But 
as I camped on it, I started to find out there's quite a bit of history there. Um, another steamboat wreck, from one thing. Uh, right across from there, there was a steamboat uh, called the, the Stonewall. And uh, what happened with the Stonewall is it was headed down river, and uh, the river was flooded, so the boat was going pretty fast. And they had a tailwind, so it made them go even faster. And they are making really good time. And you know these boats, they had to stop and get fuel. So they'd stop uh, all over the place. There's this landing and that ferry and this landing. And basically what it was, people would just go to this landing where they would have cords of wood to sell the steamboats. And they cleared off every tree for miles and miles along the Mississippi to, to have that wood for the steamboats. So right across from Hanging Dog Island, there was a, a landing there, and the steamboat pulled over, the stone wall pulled over to get more wood, and it started to take off. And, you know, uh, like I said, it's, the river was high, so it was and it had a tailwind, so they're going pretty fast. And there's some uh, hay bales at the front of uh, the stone wall. And um, they think someone probably dropped a cigarette on one, but maybe it was a spark that came from, uh, from the, the pipes, the exhaust. Don't know for sure, but for whatever reason, those steamboat, those uh, hay bales at the front of the steamboat caught on fire. So the captain, since he was so close to uh, that landing, he said, well, I'm just going to turn around and go back to that landing and uh, put that fire out. So had that fast water pushing him down the, wa- down the river, had that tailwind pushing him down the river. When he turned around... He was trying to fight the river and fight the wind, and the wind was blowing on those hay bales. It just promptly caught the steamboat on, it was just a raging fire really bad. And uh, about 300 people died right there. And um, they buried him on a, a farm there, and there on that farm right by the river, there's still a bunch of the, the graves and everything. Um. But that's not all that happened there on uh, Hanging Dog Island. Um, you know, there's some uh, ugly things in the history of uh, our nation. And uh, one of the ugliest is what we did with the Native Americans and uh, the Indian Removal Act. Um, so in um, the 1830s, they were clearing out the southeast moving all the Native Americans west. And uh, there were uh, five civilized tribes, and they were moving them all. Um, So the Cherokee, um, usually when we talk about the Trail of Tears, we talk about the the Cherokee. That's In this region, that's who we know the most about. Um, They moved them to a camp in eastern Tennessee, and then they marched them... um, across Tennessee, across Illinois, across Missouri, down into Oklahoma. It's about an 800-mile trip. And uh, actually, um, I walked that trip uh, last year. Uh, marched about 10,000 people across the state of Illinois, and uh, they were camping out on uh, the bank of the Mississippi, waiting to take a ferry across uh, in the winter of 1838-1839. And uh, there, about half those people were camping out there on Hanging Dog Island, waiting for the ferry to come across. 
And so that ferry, it's not like the ferries that we see today that would hold a couple 18-wheelers and a bunch of people. These ferries would hold maybe six or eight people and a horse maybe. And there's 10,000 people waiting to cross. So these people were camped out on that island waiting to cross in the winter. Um, Yeah, I have no doubt that a lot of people died on that island waiting to cross. And so... I was camping out on this island for a few years without knowing that history. And a lot of times when I kayak down the Mississippi, I'll take a a scout troop with me uh, from St. Louis to Cape Girardeau, and we'll camp out on that island, and we'll talk about Trail of Tears, and we'll talk about uh, Mark Twain, and we'll talk about uh, uh, steamboat wrecks and all that, you know. And and my thought with that when I do that is the kids – it might not dawn on them what they just experienced, but maybe they'll be sitting in a college class in, in a few years talking about Trail of Tears, and they're going to say, wow, I camped out there. You know, and that's, that's kind of my hope when I take those kids on that, that trip, is that uh, it'll sink in and, and hit them later. I don't think they're fully, they don't, I don't think they fully appreciate that history when I take them there, but hopefully... It'll get them later. Uh, So that's a little bit about Hanging Dog Island and uh, uh, about the Trail of Tears. And like I said earlier, my uh, great, great, great grandfather, he was uh, in the House of Representatives. And uh, yeah, he knew about that. I have no idea what he thought about it, though. I wish wish he had written something. I wish uh, I could find something about what he thought about it at the time. Um, oh, well, uh, so then we, let's go on downstream a little further to, uh, Cape Girardeau area. Um, during the civil war, there were, uh, cannons placed around, uh, Cape Girardeau, you know, uh, cannons there on the bluff, uh, just upstream of Cape Girardeau and that they got to decide which steamboats got to go up the Mississippi. Uh, during the Civil War, and uh, they're always worried about uh, someone else attacking, so they had some cannons installed around the city. Um, when I kayak from St. Louis to Cape Girardeau, uh, uh, there's this restaurant I go to all the time called Broussard's. It's this Cajun restaurant, and my mouth just started watering thinking about it. Um, so across the river from from Cape, uh, Southern Illinois. Um, there's a lot of towns there with these Egyptian names like Dongola, Golconda, Karnak, Thebes, Cairo. And a lot of people, they uh, wonder why all these Egyptian names. Uh, and the area is referred to as Little Egypt a lot of times. And there's a few theories about why uh, it's called Little Egypt. But um, one of them, it, it kind of makes sense to me, is... Uh, in 1816, uh, actually, uh, the year is usually referred to as the year 1800 and froze to death. There's a volcano, uh, uh, Tambora, that blew up, and that material, it actually caused a worldwide winter. And people all over the East Coast were freezing to death, and crops were failing, uh, because... We had no growing season. But in southern Illinois, it was a little warmer. 
and a lot of people from uh, the east, uh, the northeast, and from uh, a little further north in Illinois, they all headed down there, and it reminded reminded them of the Bible story about how people went down to the Nile Delta uh, during a famine. So that's one of the ideas about why we uh, call that Little Egypt and why those there's so many uh, Egyptian names in that that area. A um, little further south of there, um, yeah, let's talk about Cairo. Uh, Cairo used to be a just this incredible city. It's at the mouth of the Mississippi and the and the Ohio. And you know, before we had trains and interstates, like I said earlier, the river was our interstate, and so it was right there. Two of the most awesome rivers on the planet. It was a great location, but also to these huge rivers, it flooded all the time. And uh, so as a result of the floods and uh, a few other reasons, Cairo is pretty much a ghost town now. Um, If you have any interest in photography, uh, go down there and take some pictures of that place. Uh, It's beautiful and sad at the same time. You know, you'll see these incredible old mansions and uh, right across the street from a dilapidated, burned-out church. Uh, it's just really, like I said, it's it's beautiful and sad at the same time. Um, there's a library there, and that library is worth the trip. That library is just incredible. I, can, I could live in that library, but uh, I don't think they'd appreciate it much if I did that. Um, it's just a beautiful building, and uh, and like I said, this was a major city, and now it's there's not hardly anybody there. Um, so I'm just mostly talking about the Middle Mississippi on this this uh, uh, podcast. The rest of the Mississippi is interesting too. It's incredible, but I just don't have time to talk about all of it. Uh, I, I will talk a little bit more about the Mississippi, and then I'll, I'll move on to something else. I mean, a little bit further downstream of the Mississippi. So the next may, so right across from Cairo, uh, across Ohio, is uh, Wycliffe, Kentucky, and uh, it's covered with Native American mounds too. It looks a lot like Cahokia, and like I said earlier, those mounds are all up and down the Mississippi. Uh, a little further south of uh, of um, Cairo would be New Madrid. Uh, most people are familiar with New Madrid because of uh, the earthquakes. Um, 1811, 1812, um, there's a series of earthquakes. Um, if those earthquakes occurred today, there would be hundreds of thousands of deaths. But you know, in 1811, 1812, not many people lived here. Um, we don't learn from history sometimes. We, we forget what happened or what could happen again. Um, if you have access to a seismograph or you look it up uh, online, we have earthquakes every day in our region. Um, and I, I'm not this chicken little saying the sky is falling and everything, but you know, I, I want people to just 
be prepared for disasters. You think it's not going to happen? Yes, it will. We have floods every few years from the Mississippi, from the Missouri, from the Merrimack, uh, tornadoes, you know, so get prepared for that. Um, like I said, I, I'm not a chicken little, but yeah, let's don't be stupid. Let's, let's learn from the past. Um, a little further south of New Madrid is another city, and it's, it's Memphis. Um, most people, when they think of Memphis, they think of barbecue. But I want you to think about something else. I want you to think about music. That's the birthplace of rock and roll. If you like rock and roll, you need to know about Memphis. You know, just south of Memphis is the home of the blues, and it went up north to Memphis. Uh, and uh, just a few miles north of Memphis, you know, on one side of the river was uh, Johnny Cash's home. Uh, on the other side of the river was uh, uh, Tina Turner's home. They, they could probably see each other's house from where they lived. And there's just so much incredible music right in that region. And, uh, and that music just traveled all over the world, you know, and that, the blues right in that region. Um, we spit on the blues in the U.S. We spit on them. That was trash music. And uh, so many of these incredible blues musicians, they couldn't, they couldn't make a living in the U.S., so they went to England, and uh, there they appreciated that that form of music, and they took it and they changed it just a little bit and brought it back as rock and roll. Um, once again, that what we did to blues is another one of those ugly things in our history. We didn't appreciate that incredible beauty here, and it took someone else bringing it back to us before we can see what it was. Um, so I know I rambled on a, a lot there. Uh, I, I want to talk ab about paddling on the Mississippi a little bit, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about the flora and fauna, and then I'll, I'll shut up. So um, as far as the wildlife along the Mississippi, if you go anywhere near the Mississippi, it's probably a good idea to get a book on birds. Uh, the birds use the Mississippi and the Missouri as a, a way to figure out where they're going uh, as they migrate north or migrate south. And uh, just a little bit north of St. Louis, uh, uh, near Riverlands, across the river from Alton, I'm told that more birds cross that point than anywhere else in the world because they're using the rivers as a, as a highway. There are hundreds of species of fish all up and down the river. Um, more than more than I can ever uh, keep track of. Um, they were there are catfish out there bigger than you are. <laughs> uh, but there are so many other uh, awesome species of fish too. Uh, I'm I'm uh, right now I, I'm trying to learn more about the the pallid sturgeon and some of the other uh, ancient fish out there. Um, so as far as getting out there safely, it is safe to paddle on the Mississippi unless you're stupid. So let me qualify that a little bit. Um, to make the comparison with the, with the interstates, you know, you don't get out on Interstate 55 on a tricycle. 
and you don't drive north in the southbound lane. And it's the same on the Mississippi. There's rules of the road. The barges have very specific places they need to be. And if you know where that is, the rest of the river is yours. Don't go out there unless you know the rules of the road. And just like I said, don't go on the interstate on a tricycle. Don't go out on the Mississippi with a, a pool toy. Even if someone else survived it, doesn't mean it's a good idea. Have the right equipment. And I, I think that most people, it's a good idea to go out there with someone who knows what they're doing, who's been out there uh, themselves a few times. After you've been out there a few times, it, it's easy. It makes sense. Um, don't win the Darwin Award. And, you know, every time, uh, so ultimately, I think it's safer to paddle on the Mississippi and the Missouri than on the smaller rivers. There are lakes that go three and a half miles an hour. But you need to, like I said, you need to know the rules of the road and you need to have the proper gear. Um, we've seen a significant increase in the number of deaths, uh, canoe and kayak related deaths over the last couple of years. Because so many people, they've wanted to get outside and get away from people. Uh, you know, some of us who've been kayaking for a long time, we we're social distancing before it was cool. Uh, but uh, so many people go out there and they didn't know what they're doing. And uh, they had the wrong equipment or they didn't know they needed to wear a life jacket. Uh, and so, yeah, wear your life jacket, have the proper gear learn the rules of the road in the Mississippi before you get out there. There are a few organizations you can learn about uh, the river from. Uh, earlier I mentioned I'm on the board of the Mississippi River Water Trail Association. We want to take people out there. We want you to be safe, and we want you to enjoy and appreciate this beauty that we enjoy. Uh, there's the St. Louis Canoe and Kayak Club. There's quite a few other uh, groups that uh, get people out there. Uh, the Missouri Paddling Coalition. Um, yeah, we want you to get out there. We want you to enjoy it. So that's, uh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Um, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has. You can hunt me down. Um, I work and you can't see it because this is a podcast. I'm doing air quotes when I say work, but I work at the Alpine shop. Um, and yeah, I take people out there all the time. I, I teach people about how to be safe out on the Mississippi because, like I said, I want other people to, to get out there. That's kind of it. Well, that's really awesome. And you are 100% accurate with the fact of being prepared, have the right equipment, never go out on a river without some kind of life vest, um, never go out on a river without some kind of education of knowing how to read a river I have to admit to Perry and to everybody else, I've never floated the Missouri River or the Mississippi River. I've floated all the smaller streams, but and as far as the smaller streams go and stuff like that, basically we're reading the V's. Um, so that's how we follow the current. Um, I was part of the MWA, which is Missouri Whitewater Association, for a while. Um, so I learned some stuff from you, Perry, today that, um, heck, I'd like to get involved with as well. Um, 
So what is it like the organization you're with, with the Mississippi, what does it take to uh, get involved with that or does it cost or? Just look on the calendar for the Mississippi River Water Trail Association. Uh, we have classes and trips. Um, and even if there's not something on the calendar, we know other people who are going out there who uh, would be willing to take you out. Um, like I said earlier, I go with someone the first couple times you go out there. It's easy after you've been out there a couple times. It could be overwhelming to try to figure it out on your own. Right. And I mean, the, the Mississippi, and I've heard of like the great Miss Mississippi and the muddy Mississippi. And like you said, there's a lot of nicknames for the Mississippi. I learned a lot by what you just talked about today. That was awesome. Um, I know you know a lot more about the northern or the upper Mississippi and the southern Mississippi. Um, but some of the research I've actually done, which I had no clue, like the deepest point in the Mississippi is 250 feet deep. You don't think about a river that has a depth of 250 feet deep. That's deep. <laughs> Most of it's not that deep. Um, the job of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is to make sure the river is at least nine feet deep so the barges can go up and down. Um yeah, a lot of times it's it's not much deeper than that. I mean, the rivers, uh, you know, St. Missouri's in a drought right now. 75% of the state is in a drought, and the river's been running pretty low. Uh, right now, there are old steamboat wrecks all up and down the Mississippi River that we haven't seen for uh, since they wrecked in the 1800s. Um, but still, it's going to be at least nine feet deep. But a lot of times, it's not a lot deeper than that. No, and that's, I mean... That's the other thing that's going on right now that I was kind of curious about is, I mean, when you look out at the Mississippi, yeah, I mean, I'm an older guy. I can remember when there was times that the Mississippi ran low. I don't ever remember the Mississippi and the Missouri ever running this low. I mean, right now, Tower Rock, you can actually walk right out to it. <laughs> I mean... But that area right there, and you can correct me on this, but um, there's a ghost town right there by Tower Rock. And I think that that ghost town became a ghost town probably due to the fact of flooding. Is that correct? There are hundreds of ghost towns all up and down the river. I assume the one you're talking about, uh, right there's, there's Wittenberg and Altenburg. Yep. But there's a couple, there, there are a lot more all up and down the river. Yeah, and that's, I mean, most of those ghost towns that are up and down the river, and this is just me guessing, but I would assume are most likely ghost towns due to the fact of massive flooding um, and our tragic situations taking place. Yeah, well, also a lot of the ghost towns are there because our nation has changed from... Uh, using the rivers as an interstate to using trains or using roads. And so, um, yeah, the transportation moved. Exactly. And, you know, I thought that was really cool when you just, you mentioned that earlier during the podcast, because while I was researching a lot about the Mississippi and stuff like that, it was really amazing that, I mean, 
The Mississippi runs through 10 states and how they would transport product from up north in Minnesota all the way down to Louisiana and all that. That's to me is amazing. And I mean, the amount of miles that stuff could travel. And you're right. There was back then not much on trains, not much on, uh, I mean, roads and stuff like that. There was none. I mean, it was gravel roads. It was dirt paths. It was, <laughs> um, and I didn't think about, you know, how many Indians and stuff like that lived along the Mississippi. Um, but when you're talking about Cahokia Mounds and stuff like that, I've been to that one mound out there. It's the tallest mound out there. That's Monk's still, Mound. Monk's Mound. That thing, I mean, unless you're in shape, <laughs> take your time getting to the top of it. Because um, that place is, it's high, but it's very, very, very cool. You mentioned another mound, though, while we were talking about the podcast. What was that mound that's still out there, that really tall one? Is that Monk's Mound? Monk's Mound is one of the largest. Uh, or, yeah, it's that's probably the biggest. Okay, because that's that's right by the museum, correct? Uh, it's across the road from the the museum. The yeah. museum is still closed for some reason. It's they're refurbishing it. Uh, it's taken really long. I, I I think it might be closed for the rest of the year. Even I'm not for sure. Oh wow! That's it's you don't have to go there when the museum's open. I mean, go out there and wander around the grounds. It's it's really incredible. But you know, you mentioned the the river being low and. I mean, right now the river is low. I, I think it's about 180 cubic, 180 thousand cubic feet per second going past St. Louis. And to put that into perspective, a cubic foot is about the size of a basketball. So think about 180 thousand basketballs going by every second. That's how much water wow. is in the Mississippi right now. Um. And like we said, it's low. I think it's like 10 or 11 feet St. Louis gauge right now. Um, I, I, I'm just kind of guessing at that. So about 10 or 11 feet St. Louis gauge. And that's the depth approximately? Well, that's not, it, it's, it's a long story about how they get to that figure. The water is actually a lot deeper than that. But that's just where it is on the gauge. Okay. Yeah, because I've seen some of the gauges on the side of the rivers. Is that, I mean. Yeah, so, I mean, even, it could be at zero St. Louis gauge, and the river's still deep enough for a barge to get by. Okay. Uh, so, it would still be more than nine feet, but the river will be constricted. Um, but just, the gauge is, it shows 10 feet on the gauge. It, it's hard to explain. Yeah, I understand. I mean, it's just, it, there's a lot that's a lot of knowledge and stuff. Um, and the entire Mississippi is 2,340 miles from uh, north to south. Is that correct? Yeah. Like I said, it starts at Lake Itasca, Minnesota, and it ends about 100 miles past New Orleans. Okay. Um, what I was shocked to see is actually, and I didn't know this until today, um, Lake Itasca 
which you're talking about, is there's actually a spring, and that spring is a major portion of the upper Mississippi, um, which I had no clue. Um, I wish I had that information with me right now, but there's a spring up there that shoots out a massive amount of water. Um, Well, there's quite a few springs going into Lake Itasca. Uh, It's just this beautiful lake. And uh, then after Lake Itasca, um, you go through wild rice fields. Um, It's hard to explain what a wild rice field looks like. Uh, I'm going to try anyhow. Imagine somebody decided to dig a ditch through a cornfield, a deep ditch. And... uh, um, but it's not straight. It turns, turns, turns. It just mazes. And it's real easy to get lost out there. And you can reach your paddle out to each side of the river and touch bank. Wow. Uh, through these rice fields. Uh, but then after you get through the rice fields, the Mississippi looks a lot like the Merrimack or the Gasconade until you get to uh, Minneapolis. Um, it, it, it looks a lot like it, except... You see bears and stuff, and hear wolves, which is pretty cool. And I haven't done that. I haven't seen bears and wolves along the Merrimack yet. No, I haven't seen that either. Not on the Merrimack. I have out in the Smokies and stuff like that, but not not on the Merrimack. Yeah, I saw a bear down by Potosi a couple of years ago. Oh, did you really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, the uh, you know while while researching this, and I'm going to ask you if you knew about this. Um, there's a spot up near the top of the Mississippi um, where there's a, I guess they do educational courses and stuff like that, but they have this saying, this lady took this person out. It was like a news show, but it was on YouTube. You can actually go out and find it. I'll try to find out what the name of it is mentioned on one of the upcoming podcasts. Hopefully we can have you back Perry to talk more about this, but the, uh, um, there's a point up there by that lake between the lake and the Mississippi where they actually tell you that, all right, now we have to walk all the way across the Mississippi. When you get out to the middle Mississippi of the that portion, you have to make a wish, and then you have to cross all the way over to the other side. And when you come all the way back, you got nine days, and your wish will come true. Basically, that's what she was telling the guy. And she said that the reason why is what it is is from the top of that point, when you get out to that point and you make your wish, she goes, it takes nine days for the Mississippi from that point to get all the way down to the Gulf. Um, yeah, I don't know what they're talking about with that, but um, they say that a drop that a drop of water from Lake Itasca takes three months to get to the Gulf. Okay. So, um, yeah... Uh, Nine so, days, you could drive it in that. <laughs> yeah, that's so <laughs> exactly. I mean, I seen this on a YouTube news channel, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but I wanted to ask you about it. I should have actually gotten the name of the channel. Um, but I'll bring it up to you again because seriously, I, what I would like to do, I know we talked primarily, or you talked primarily about the middle Mississippi. Um, I know you know plenty about the upper Mississippi as well as the southern Mississippi. Um, and I'd like for you to talk about that as well. 
there's a lot, Perry, that you know and do. I mean, you do the 340 every year, I think, don't you? Uh, yeah, just about. I think I think this is gonna be my 16th. Yeah, um, got two first place trophies, three second place trophies. And uh, can you explain to the listeners what the 340 is? It's a 340 mile kayak race from Kansas City to St. Charles on the Missouri River. And uh, it's awesome. And I do it in a different division every year. I've done it solo, tandem, uh, Voyager, team, dragon boat. Um, that race is what's really turned me from a floater into a real kayaker. Before that, I just did boring little float trips uh, on the current or on the uh, Jack's Fork or on the Merrimack. But uh, that race is what's helped me evolve into a real real life kayaker. You know, everybody thinks they're a kayaker. They've been on a couple drunken float trips on the, on the Merrimack or the current, and they think they're experts. But, yeah, there's so much to learn out there. There is, and you have to have that education under your belt before you get out there and start, start trying to do some of this bigger stuff that you're doing. I wouldn't recommend just anybody go out there and jump on a river by no means, but... Um, I take kids out there all the time. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. And That's exactly it. I don't it. want people yep. going out there, and I had mentioned this earlier in, in winning the Darwin Award. Um, you know, every year, between uh, usually about 70 to 80 people canoe or kayak the whole Mississippi River. Um. Yeah, an 87-year-old 87 man did it last year. Oh, wow. And uh, it's it's incredible. I, I'd love it if more people would do that, but don't be dumb. <laughs> well, and, you know, I mean, same goes for a lot of situations with the outdoors. Yeah. You know, because you work at the Alpine shop. Um, you've been doing you, – you have – your head over a big outdoor group um, and stuff like that. Um, I've been caving for many, many, many years. Um, if you don't know what you're doing before you jump into something, don't do it. I mean, uh, so um, because the last thing you want to do is, like you said, the Darwin Awards. Um, definitely not a good book to be part of or not yeah. an organization that you want to be part of. Yeah. What happens a lot of times if there is, if somebody dies on the Mississippi, people start saying, well, the Mississippi is dangerous. No, being stupid is dangerous. That's you true. Know? That is very uh, true. It's safe if you know what you're doing and you have the proper gear. Yep. I mean, and even if you think about it, Castlewood, Castlewood State Park, Right down there. I mean, that's a little bend in the river on the Merrimack. And that is where I can say there's stupidity involved because they have signs everywhere of how many drownings there are because there's keepers. You know what keepers are. And I'm not sure everybody else knows what keepers are, but basically there's strainers, there's keepers, there's undertow and stuff like that. I don't think the... I think I was talking to you about that before, where the Missouri or Mississippi, they don't really have too much undertow, do they? No, there's no undertow. Yeah. 
So I mean, there's a lot of weird currents and everything, but it's not an undertow. That's that's a very specific uh, type of current. Yeah. Um, well, as far as like um, some of the stuff, like on St. Francis, where I think you just did a river cleanup on the St. Francis. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and I know you've done whitewater kayaking and stuff like that, right? I suck at whitewater. Oh, Okay. I can, I can, you know, I can, uh, I could be out on the Mississippi in a flood with lightning flashing and houses floating by. I'm perfectly calm. I get in white water. I just make a fool out of myself. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, it's a totally different beast. But the thing is, is that, um, like on the St. Francis, like there's cat's paw, there's big drop, there's all these, and that's where. Water's flowing over these boulders, going down, hitting another boulder, splashing back, coming back up. It's creating a washing machine effect, basically, to a certain... And it's one of the most beautiful places in Missouri. It and is if gorgeous. If you get a chance, go down there and take a look at it. It's just incredible. It is beautiful. Um, when the water's rushing like that, because that actually does go... I mean, I've seen it as class one. I've seen it as class six. So it definitely... Um, has its water is a very powerful, um, it's a powerful portion of nature. Um, and where you were talking, you know, like the earthquake and stuff like that, if that hit now, there'd be a lot of people, well, a lot of devastation everywhere. The New Madrid fault. Um, how far is that from the the actual river is the is that in the under the river or is it i i don't remember how far it is from the river it's not very far i mean new madrid is right there on the river okay but uh i don't know where the big earthquakes actually were but you know there is speaking of that you know there is this common misconception and people will argue about this all the time the mississippi did not go backwards during the great that during the 1811-1812 earthquakes that's not how rivers work uh, basically what it was it was an inland tsunami it was a wave going upstream which yeah it looks like the river's running backwards but yeah the river wasn't actually running backwards so there was not like an earthquake that opened up and uh, at that point it sucked yeah, everything the back river, so it's possible the river ran backwards for a very few seconds because of real foot lakes, but I doubt it. Okay. But it was basically just a big wave going upstream. Wow. Um, just the same as there's a tsunami in the ocean after an earthquake. Yeah. But the river wasn't running backwards. Okay. Well, that's, that's another piece that I didn't realize because, I mean, I do know that... Um, you know, there's there's certain rivers and stuff like that, and I was I like reading like different books and stuff like that. And when you read about anywhere in the world, the standard way you look at at water is that always is going to run from north to south, but it depends on the topography of the Earth because sometimes <laughs> there's hills that are on the the south side that are going to be running 
Well, the north. big river runs north. Yep, it does. So there's a lot of rivers out there that actually, I don't want to say a lot of rivers. There are some rivers that actually run from the south to the north. There are a lot. Yep. Especially in the southern hemisphere. In the some <laughs> exactly. So, but yes. So, uh, is there a possible way that we can um, have you back, Perry, to actually talk about the other portions of the Mississippi? Sure. That'd be fantastic. Um, I think a lot of people are really going to enjoy this one. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, and I truly appreciate you coming out and being part of this, Perry. Um, this is, uh, you know, we started this podcast beginning of January. Um, not this particular podcast, the podcast <laughs> channel. <laughs> um, so, um, and we've already got a good amount of listeners and followers and stuff like that um, in less than a month. So, um, I think we're just a little bit over a month now that, so, but yeah, it's, I'm excited about it. And, um, I definitely enjoy having guests like you, Perry, that, um, are very knowledgeable about the areas. Um, and I know you can talk about a lot of other things. There's not just rivers that you can talk about, but we can talk further in the future about other things as well. Um, cause you have the experience, you have the knowledge and stuff like that. And that's what I want from guests is I don't want to get somebody in here that thinks that they might know something. I want people that know what they're talking about. So everybody's an expert. Well, <laughs> I always say, you know, you ain't going to stop learning until all five fingers become the same length. And that's the way I look at things. I I do not look at myself as an expert of anything. I have knowledge of certain things, but I'm not an expert. Um, I'm always going to learn. Um, so, obviously, my fingers are never going to become the same length, so I'll continue to learn until the day I die. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's... Uh, I truly appreciate you being part of the show, and uh, I hope that we can get you to come back um, and we'll talk more about the Mississippi. We'll talk about other events that you've done, um, and stuff like that. But everything that you brought up is absolutely fantastic. I like the whole, um, show that you've done on this. So again, I want to thank you and, um, I want to thank the guests and everybody else for listening. Um, so I appreciate it, Perry. Cheers. Cheers.